Hello everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host Mark Bigney and with me as always is my loyal, talented, and extremely aesthetically pleasing, at least to some people anyway, co-host Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Always good, Mark. Glad to hear it. So let's start off with a couple important bits of follow-up from last week. One thing that I just wanted to clarify, this was pointed out by a user. This is the important clarification, and then there's the less important but still very important clarification. The important clarification is I made a couple of cracks about feminism last week, and I just wanted to make absolutely sure that everyone understood that I am very sincere when it comes to the importance of gender-neutral language and game components. So when I was correcting Walker about the difference between mermen and merfolk, I was actually being sincere. I was just trying to make light of the situation so as to make Walker feel a little less bad about himself for being wrong about everything all the time. And when it comes to things like gender-neutral pronouns and rule books, I actually very sincerely believe that that is an important thing to do. I think that the hobby needs to be more inclusive. Walker agrees with me, although we may in many cases disagree about what we need to do in order to make the hobby more inclusive. We're all on the same page about the necessity of doing so. So if anybody thought that I was making light of the need to do that, I wasn't, and I apologize. I was just trying to make light of the situation rather than the important issue. I also want to make sure everyone understands that I definitely felt guilty and ashamed. How is that different from normal? Not not really. Okay. The second thing that I'd like to point out is something that was pointed out by a loyal listener, and for this I'm very grateful, and that is that we've been playing the Hyperborea expansion wrong because the rules have been wrong. And I don't feel very bad about this. Normally when I get a rule wrong, I feel extremely guilty and defensive and self-conscious, and I usually take it out on those around me with uh, verbal and uh, physical abuse. But this time I don't feel too bad about it because the English rules are flatly wrong, the German rules are flatly wrong, and it's only in the Italian rules that you can find the clarification. Indeed, on BoardGameGeek, and to the best of my understanding, this is the most prominent instance of an English forum issuing the rules correction, on a singly-thumbed post from two years ago, we have a two messages down, we have a posting from the publisher uh, saying that indeed there was a mistranslation in the English rules and that he's going to upload a corrected version any day now. And again, as I say, that was two years ago. And that is the only reference that I can find as to the correct rule. But anyway, if you have been playing Hyperborea with the expansion, just note that white cubes don't generate a cube. They allow you to draw a cube, which is an important difference and one that I missed because it's very easy to miss. So with those clarifications on the way, let us continue on with the agenda for the day. We've decided to mix things up a bit, and we're going to talk about board games today. We're going to talk about games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. We're going to talk about our feature game, which is Keyflower by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Brees. And then finally, our our feature topic is going to be games that are too long, very much like most of my sentences. So with that in mind, let us begin with games we played last week. Walker, what graced your table last week? Well, we got Imperial Salt back to the table. We're going to try to push our way through a full campaign, seeing as we've played the Descent campaign several times all the way through and have yet to get, well, now we're on to the third mission of an Imperial Salt campaign. The only reason I'm bringing it up is it came to a, f- a few funny situations. It looks as though when they made the app, they're purposely making you think that it's a random generation because it like cycles through a whole bunch of monsters and it's like a wheel spinning around and it rests on on a, a particular monster and that's what you're going to be fighting in a room. So we open up this one room and there's the Emperor Palpatine standing there. After dispatching with him and turning the corner, it decided that it needed a random 
bounty hunter figure, so we got the Rancor as well as the giant Adat all at the same time. This is what I love about thematic experiences, right? Because that totally makes a plausible, compelling narrative. Because definitely in Room 1, what you do is you assassinate the Emperor of Great Evil Empire, and then as a follow-up, you go tussle with some sort of giant monster. Like, that. that's just the way that it works. That's called plot progression. It was... I'm, I couldn't believe we got through it, but we got through it with only a few of us dying, so... That is the Imperial Assault campaign with random monster generation. So you said that you had to push. You were going to push your way through an Imperial Assault campaign. Are you, in point of fact, enjoying it? I am. Okay. Well, when you come to things like that, you know, you sort of, it sort of like bogs it down a little bit, right? I, I don't know what makes the Descent one more enjoyable or make more sense. Maybe it's just because the range is a little more limited. There's not as many gigantic monsters like Rancors and Emperors, and they're all just sort of generic monster groups, but... Hopefully the next random rolls won't be so random. Well, part of the problem also might be, and this is just generally a problem of, of certain kinds of licenses, the Star Wars license is just, it just seems to be very, very narrow in scope. All that there is to do is just constantly rehash the same old stuff over and over and over and over again. Uh, so I think that might be less the fault of Imperial Assault and more just the issue of adapting Star Wars. But anyway, that that's that's my own axe to grind. I was able to play Lords of Vegas. Lords of Vegas came out about uh, eight years ago now. It's by James Ernest and Mike Selinker. This is back when uh, Mayfair was actually a game publisher, and they put this out. It's kind of sort of Monopoly done right, and uh, it's a bit like Chinatown. It's a bit like Monopoly. You have this random influx of properties, and you try to make a go via negotiation and a bit of luck into getting groups of properties that can then help you win. And it, it was okay, but honestly, for the impact of luck that was in the game, I wish it were about half as long as it was. The game we played was about 90 minutes, and I don't think any of us were playing very slowly. And given the outsized influence of things like turn order and of just random die rolls and random pulls of the cards, I would have been much happier if it were half as long. I didn't find it objectionable, but all told, I didn't really find anything to grab me, and it was generally uninspired. A lot of people really seem to like Lords of Vegas, but as I say, it didn't do much for me, and I would have been a lot happier if it had been over, over quicker and or been a little bit more deterministic. Lords of Vegas, I got to table a game that I haven't played in a year. I played it at the last UK Games Expo, and I'm this year's UK Games Expo is happening right now. It is the stained glass game called Sagrada, and I enjoyed it back then, so I wanted to get back to the table, and I enjoyed it this time as well. It's very quick, plays very nicely and smooth. Everyone who played it enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to playing it again. Is there enough there there? Not, like I said, for the amount of time it takes, mm. It's I think it's fine. Sure. You're, what you're doing is you're matching numbers and colors and drafting dice and creating this little stained glass time to you know get a point generation thing going it's and it changes up every time because there's different point different things are going to score points every game so it's pretty interesting have you seen any pictures of the building upon which the game is nominally based probably i wouldn't know which particular ones you know i've seen many cathedrals and stained glass but that particular one i wouldn't know how to pick it out no. oh this one looks very different does it? I would encourage anyone who has not seen it to go look it up. Just just go look it up on, on Wikipedia. It's uh, it's quite the building. It's quite impressive. Very divisive also in both architectural and religious circles. Well, which building is it? In? It's called La Sagrada Familia, 
and it is definitely striking. It does not look like every other cathedral you've seen. It's actually relatively recent. It was not constructed, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it's not actually finished, to the best of my understanding. They're still in the process of trying to raise money to finish it. Anyway, Sagrada is a very popular game. I'll probably try it, but uh, yeah, I indeed, that's one of those things that I think you have to keep moving relatively quickly because it doesn't seem like there's a whole heck of a lot there, which can be fine. Yeah, which can be fine. Like That's what I'm worried about Azul as well. We'll see. I still haven't played Azul. Maybe next week. Who knows? Sure. There is no Dana. There's only Azul. I played Thunderbolt Apache Leader, which is another solo game by Dan Verson of Dan Verson Games. Dan Verson Games being the game publisher that publishes games by Dan Verson. And uh, I've been trying to ease my way into a genre of game that we've called before fun paperwork. Our Kingdom Death Monster campaign has been a little stalled because ever since I uh, bought a house and a whole bunch of other things happened, I haven't really been in the right mindset for fun paperwork. And, And most of the administrative upkeep of the Kingdom Death Monster campaign rests on my shoulders, largely because number one, I'm the one who owns the game, and number two, I think I'm the only one of the four of us that knows how to read. So Thunderbolt Apache Leader was kind of my way back in, and I had a great time with it. I really like Thunderbolt Apache Leader if you play it at the right pace, which is to say very slowly, as in you play a mission, you walk away. You play a mission, you walk away. You play a mission, you walk away, because all in one sitting, it's a bit much. I have a great enthusiasm for the eponymous warplane uh, that Thunderbolt Apache Leader is named after and features prominently in the missions. It's a game about close air support, and it's a little more involved than a lot of the other Danversen games of, of the, the Leader series. So there's Hornet Leader, there's Israeli Air Force Leader, there's, there's all manner of, of, of Leader games, but most of them, the resolution of the missions is very, very, very straightforward. But in Thunderbolt Apache Leader, it's a little more involved. You, have, you set out a hex map, and you set out individual enemies, and you go and you murder absolutely everything. So it's viscerally satisfying in that sense. I'm one of those pacifists who really finds military technology fascinating, even though I think it ought never to be employed. But anyhow, uh, so <laughs> I had a good time with Thunderbolt Apache Leader, and I think I might be ready for more King Death coming uh, coming forward. This is my public announcement. That's, so. that's good news to me. Yeah. We both got to the table, a game that we love, Ginkopolis. It is a fantastic card drafting, hand management, building, tile laying, everything above worker placement. Yeah, everything short of worker placement, pretty yeah. much. There are no auctions and there's no worker placement. But other than that, you've got pretty much all the, the, the Euro hallmarks. And it's a great game. Normally, I hate sort of mishmash Euro games of this weight. But Ginkopolis is really solid. It's stood the test of time. People are clamoring for a reprint. And it's fetching obscene prices on Board Game Geek. Yeah, now. you can even throw area control in there, too. It does have area control, absolutely. Yeah. It's a little bit of everything yeah, in yeah, this yeah. little box. It's true, and it's reasonably straightforward. The way it cycles cards, I find borderline fascinating. In a way, it, it's one of those strange things about how cards entering the system, it's not actually a function of much gameplay decision. It all takes care of itself. When teaching the game to new players, though, they're often like, wait, but and this happens every time. You explain the rules to them, and the rules are relatively straightforward, and they start asking questions about, wait, so this card... Where, where does it go? It's like, don't worry, it takes care of itself. And this other card, where does it come from? Don't worry, it takes care of itself. And then about two turns, and they're like, oh, you're right, it does take care of itself. So it's it's a little clever that way. And I find it very visually satisfying, and it moves very quickly. It's just a it's just an excellent light to medium weight Euro game. It's a shame that it's so heavily out of print. And uh, I still don't have a copy of the expansion, but it doesn't add a whole heck of a lot to the game. Uh, from what I can see. So yeah, Ginkopolis is always a pleasure. And it, it, I have yet to, to have anyone be disappointed by the game. It seems to win friends wherever it goes. Yeah, easy to teach. 
quick to play. The, the publisher shows up every once in a while on Board Game Beat to say, there's no plan for a reprint yet, there's no plan for a reprint yet. But lately, the publisher has been intimating that there might be some reworking of the game, if not a straight reprint. So, you know, maybe news to follow. I got to introduce Walker to Aura at Labora by Ua Rosenberg. I've commented before when we were talking about Feast for Odin that Feast for Odin, Aura at Labora, and Agricola are pretty much the only three Ua Rosenberg games that I feel the need to play. Aura at Labora, I thought, might appeal to Walker because you don't have to feed anybody. And uh, that is one of Walker's bugbears. He hates that. It actually does this thing where effectively you do have to feed people, but only in the sense that you need a lot of food to build these buildings at regular intervals. It's this classic example of a psychological phenomenon that I find fascinating, which is some gamers are so loss-averse that if you give them regular opportunities to score points that they give up on, they're fine with that. But if you give them regular opportunities where they might lose points, that they're not okay with. And that's very much what happens in Ort Labora. There are these regular moments where you have to build settlements, and if you can't build all the settlements, you can't keep up. And that's more or less exactly what happens. Happened. Walker, by the end of Ort Labora, had this incredibly efficient, grotesquely lucrative scoring engine built up that he was hammering hard, and meanwhile I was desperately in my corner trying to end the game so as to save some semblance of... <laughs> Of, of of score differential and the only reason why I was able to get even anywhere close to a score was because there was this one juncture where I was able to feed people and he wasn't so I guess at the end of the day it was the same old revenge I really like Or at Labora it's one of Ua Rosenberg's longer games uh, make no mistake even at two it's, it's a relatively involved process and you do get to build these sprawling things. But one of the things that I like about Or at Labora, as opposed to Feast for Odin, which, again, a Feast for Odin I love, we've talked about this before, at least in Or at Labora, your action spaces grow as the game proceeds, as opposed to Feast for Odin, where it's like, here's your entire grid of actions, and it will never, ever change. I do like a little bit more of, of opening up the game space as the game goes on. What yeah, did you think of Ort Labora? I like it. Graduated card systems. I'm sure we're going to talk about that later, but I love them. Fantastic. It has a wheel system where it keeps clicking up, so the longer you leave a resource unclaimed, the more it builds up automatically, and you don't have to keep piling resources yeah. onto these giant piles like you do in like a Caverna or a Gricula or... Or Lav. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit obnoxious, yeah. And so everything is about as good. I think I was, if I'm in even a better mind state, I enjoyed it in the mind state I was in. Even if I get some sleep one day, which will be fantastic, <laughs> uh, then I think I'll enjoy it even more. It does feel more mentally taxing than a lot of other Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games, and I don't really know why. It's strange, because in terms of density of the rules, it's, if anything, a little bit lighter, I think, than, say, A Feast for Odin or even Agricola, because Agricola, although relatively simple, there are a number of things about, okay, here's how you build fences, and then fences build these fields, and fields hold animals in this way, and so forth. Whereas or at Labora is more or less just a question of activate a building or tear down something, and there you go. But you're right. It is it is surprisingly mentally engaging for what it is, and, and sometimes that's not what everyone's in the mood for. Probably because everything is in those cards, and they suddenly appear as opposed to, you know, like you said, in Feast for Odin, all the actions are static, so you can sort of get to know them and know what they do, whereas these cards are all suddenly appearing, so you sort of have to, you know, suss out an engine quickly before someone takes the cards that you want. That is a good point. There is a lot of there are a lot of different cards you have to keep in mind and then yet more flood the system. That's a good point. We got to the table a new game called Dungeon Alliance. And it is sort of a another dungeon delving type game. And it's a deck builder by the same designer of Core Worlds. Yes, Andrew Parks. Andrew Parks. So I was initially looking forward to it. What what do you think? The first part? <laughs> I, before 
before I get myself worked up. Why don't you tell me what you thought? I was initially looking forward to it, pregnant pause. What did you think of it? Yeah. Um, I'm going to need, I think, a little bit more time with the game to form a definitive opinion. Because I don't know if it's very manifest faults are the kind of thing that are either my fault or the way that we approached it. So we played it with four which I think I'm confident in saying it doesn't want to be played with. Four is too many. Core Worlds, very much like Dungeon Alliance, is a game that can definitely get too long if you have too many players. And honestly, with four, Core Worlds can drag a little bit. But with four players, our game of Dungeon Alliance lasted about four hours, and we didn't even finish. And we had to to call it. So again, this is an incomplete game. And it it did seem to... One of the things that I that I demand in a game of this length, and we'll be talking a lot more about this later when we talk about game, games that are too long, I like it if it's got a bit of an arc. And, you know, what you're doing in hour three or four is not exactly the same as what you're doing in hour one. And sometimes it seems like you're doing something different, but it's really just the same. If the num- if it's just a question of the, of the numbers getting bigger, doing the same thing but with larger numbers, that doesn't really do it for me. And to a certain extent, that's what was going on with Dungeon Alliance. Yes, the decks are all graduated. Yes... Everything gets more powerful, but it's mostly just bigger numbers. And honestly, although there were elements of the deck building that were okay, uh, mostly there there seemed to be a lot of power snowballing. Namely, if you do well in the early rounds, you're going to be able to buy the better cards, and then with those better cards, you're going to go and do better things. The player interaction was a little indirect for my tastes. It requires you to be actively mean towards other players, which for some groups will be fine, but is not not necessarily for, for, for many groups. It's also worth noting that visually, I, I think that Dungeon Alliance is pretty poor. We've been spoiled by very well-designed games artistically, and I don't think Dungeon Alliance looks very good on the table. So, well, I th- well, for what it is, I think it's great. Like, you know, it's very innovative, like a 504. What are you talking about? Well, for a game to come out of a time capsule <laughs> from 20 years ago and then be put into production, I think that's a pretty amazing thing. Fair enough. Now, I don't want to harp on it too much because this is a first-time publisher, but a lot, and they have a lot of artists on staff. But I just didn't like the art style personally. That could be just a personal thing, or maybe it's quality thing. There was a lot interesting going on. I did like the way character activation worked. I did like the way the card management worked and the hand management and all that. It was vaguely evocative of Mage Knight in that sense, and that's that's no small thing in terms of how to plan out your your turn by virtue of the cards that you have to figure out what you can do. And so I, I do want to try it again, but honestly, I think at the end of the day, it's not going to Let me just hit on that quickly before sure. we move on. If you're playing one character, I would agree that this the hand made sense. We were in charge of four characters. So when you got your hand of cards, it was obvious which character you were to activate. Yeah, that's my concern. So your choice was wasn't really there because if you know say oh i have two cards from this but six cards from this other this other character said well i'm going to activate the one and only use two cards that does not make sense and then when you go to purchase cards there's some that you cannot purchase at all and some that are only for you that are the obvious choice yeah one of the conceits of the game is that you're running a team of adventurers and they each have class and race icons and cards can only be used if you match up a certain number of these symbols and initially that seemed clever but in my play experiences so far and again this is very limited i agree with walker it doesn't serve to expand your play your play choices it serves to narrow them if you know you look at your hand and figure okay well i don't have any cards of this character so i just don't activate them and wait and hope to draw more of theirs so it seems to just be a question of go and kill the biggest thing you can with the cards you've got. 
yeah, so it seemed a bit of a wasted opportunity in that sense. So. And then the player interaction, which was, in my opinion, zero. Like, I don't think we had any hero actual interaction. Like, well, that, that's I, because we played without PvP. True. But that was our choice. I know, but we could have tag team monsters and both attacked them. I don't think that ever happened any time in the game. I tried at the very end, but it never happened. The other interaction is there is at the end of your turn, you control one of the monsters and attack, you know, try to, you know, logistically you know, maybe pick on the weakest or try to slow the other character down. But how many times did like a random person not be allowed to activate anything? So they didn't, didn't get that opportunity at all, That's which, true. which I don't think was fan, you know, not a huge thing, but I just mean the fact that, you know, some people got to do it and others didn't, I th- I thought was kind of odd. It's true. And like you said, we didn't even finish one game, so I really shouldn't be downing it too much. But I don't really know that in the particular session that we had, really hour five or six was going to make us change our minds about the fundamentals of the card activation system or what have you. So true. But who knows? Who knows? I finally got to try Spheres of Influence. You've heard Walker talk about Spheres of Influence and how he likes it. And I'm here to tell you that Walker's wrong. It's not a good game. The activation system that I thought might be interesting didn't really pan out in a way that I that I appreciated because in a game of this length, Really, if you get the extra activation cards in the early rounds, then it's just a question of the rich get richer again because there's not a significant trade-off. I was hoping that there would be an issue of I could either go for more activations or I could go for this incredibly other lucrative opportunity. And mostly that isn't the case. Mostly it's just a question of gobbling up all the territory you can. There wasn't a whole lot of player interaction with Spheres of Influence either. And very much like a lot of other risk derivatives, it has two, it really leans into two of the big problems in a lot of risk derivatives, which is number one, uh, if two players fight, then everybody else benefits because those two players are weakened and you can swoop in later and take something on the cheap. And perhaps even more damning in games of this ilk, Catan has this problem. A lot of the, the game can be decided by setup. At the start of the game, everyone has two play, two choices of, of where to start, but you don't know where anyone else is going to start up. It all It's all done uh, selected simultaneously. And I don't know if this was just a freak of the one time I played and it wouldn't happen the other, the other time, but basically you can look at the map and make a reasonable inference about who's going to win based on how much open geography they have based on where everyone else is set up. And sure enough, in the game we played, there were a whole bunch of people that were clustered in the Western Hemisphere. And then there were two players in the Eastern Hemisphere, but one of them had access to East uh, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and potentially even Oceania. And yeah, so he metastasized all over the board, and I think he was involved in, what, one or two fights maybe? And uh, he just gobbled up most of the world, and that was that. Now he he played well. I'm not I'm not begrudging him his victory. It's just it, it, at at the start of the map, I basically was in a position of looking at the map and saying, "I think I know how this is gonna go." And sure enough, two hours later, it went exactly that way. So that was my impression of Spheres of Influence. Yeah, I'd have to admit that, that it was an odd game. That's okay. for sure. I don't want to. It was definitely not uh, par for the course. I see. You're, so your other ex- your other playings have not had those defects. No. Okay. Good to hear. And usually one player doesn't get nuked twice. Yeah, the nuke card is also weird. I, I also didn't like the fact that there were the in, the... in the Take That cards, of course, they vary wildly from borderline useless to obviously amazing. And, I mean, that that's bad enough. But then there's also the nuke card, which is remove a territory entirely from the game, which is targeted aggression that, that that's very, very spiteful because you don't even get anything out of it. You just remove it from the game. But in, in order to play the card, you need to discard three other cards. 
So that's a commitment of four cards, which is very expensive. And there's a cancel card. And the cancel card specifically said says if you cancel a nuke, they still have to pay the other three cards. It just it, it just seems to be asking for, for hurt feelings and bad degenerate choices. I agree. But like I said, I wanna I just want to reflect on you know, for what it is, I think it, it does its job. Like for it being just sure. a, you know, a, a slight upgrade to risk, I think it is a good alternative for sure. I still love it. All right. So that's what we played last week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. So call it whatever you want, the pre-origins slump. I mean, everyone's just waiting for Steel Team Flicks, right? It's true. It's out. Apparently at UK Games Expo, they've got copies there from what I've read. I know. I know. Some people have it and uh, they are clearly the the lucky ones. Us colonials have to wait for it. It's going to be released also at Origins. So the lucky people at Origins will have have their chance at it. And then, as we've said before, after Steel Team Flicks and and Starship Samurai are out, there will be no more games worth mentioning. We're going to be renaming the podcast and only talking about those two games. So I hope everyone's prepared. Yeah, I mean, look forward to hearing in our Games Played Last Week segment our talking about SEAL Team Flicks and Starship Samurai every week from here until We could break it down into, like, the different missions and we can go in-depth on how, you know, different strategies. It's going to be great. I don't want to give away anything. Sure. Sorry, I didn't. Spoilers. Sorry, sorry. Sure. Uh, But there is uh, one game that's supposed to be coming out next year that kind of caught my eye for very idiosyncratic reasons, and that is Jetpack Joyride is getting a, a board game. I have spent an embarrassing amount of time with Jetpack Joyride. I really like Android consoles. I'm, I'm heavy into emulation, especially Neo Geo games from back in the day. And so there are some Android apps that I've spent a lot of time with, and one of them is Jetpack Joyride. And it, it, it looks like it could actually be some stupid fun. It's a real-time game where you're trying to uh, place tetrominoes in uh, to, to chart a path, avoiding obstacles and getting coins and stuff. Anyway, looks potentially cute. And that is literally all that I saw in the news that caught my attention. I had to look pretty deep myself. I'm only going to bring up Spring Meadow because Uwe Rosenberg, we enjoy all his games, yet I haven't played any of these games. I have not played Cottage Garden, have not played Indian Summer, and now yet another one It looks like another like Feast for Odin puzzle spin-off game. Like one of the, you know, one of the cuts that didn't make the game is going to be made <laughs> into yet another game. Dude called, is prolific. Called Spring Meadow. Apparently it's the, the gamiest game of all the games. None more gamey? None more gamey than this game. Okay. Other news. So let's get on to this and we can finally be done with our Massive Darkness Grand Kickstarter Lightbringer Pledge Giveaway. <laughs> and the winner is random chose, chosen randomly from our slew of emails, Corey Fensod from Long Valley. Congratulations, Corey. This week, in fact, in a couple days, we are going to be bundling ourselves, hurtling ourselves across the border, assuming that the border guards don't stop us, and uh, shipping you your very own copy of Massive Darkness. So congratulations. Yeah, it's not going to be that far away. We'll be shipping it from Watertown, which is only a few hours north of you, so you should even get it maybe this week. Who knows? One other bit of self-centered news, and that is I was on the Longview podcast again. The Longview is a podcast by uh, TC and Joe Salen, and they go in-depth into a single game. So unlike the very uh, carefully curated content that you see here on So Very Wrong About Games, where maybe we'll talk about a game for five seconds and then move on and never mention it again, it's a two-hour experience of talking about uh, a single game. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. And it has all the rambling sort of social chit-chat that normal people engage in, but 
Walker and I are extremely antisocial introverts, so we don't tend to talk about anything other than the games that we have in front of us. I mean, that's one of the reasons why our episodes are so short. And the moment we're sitting across from each other, the eye contact starts to make us nervous, and you know, we, we need to we need to go off into our corners and and uh, shake ourselves in the fetal position. But at any rate, we recorded an episode about El Grande a few months ago, and it's been released this week. So if you want to go hear me talk about El Grande for a very long time, you can go find me on the Longview. I'm a tether with anticipation. Well, you don't even listen to this podcast, so don't even <laughs> pretend that you're going to go and listen to the other thing. I don't even know why I bother. I literally... No, you know what? I do know why I bother. <laughs> you know I, I do it for Corey. I do it's it. for Corey. It's, for it's for, all for Corey now. It's all for Corey. This podcast has been brought to you by Corey, the only one who cares. On to the feature game of the week, which is Keyflower. So Keyflower was put out by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Brees of R&D Games. And this is the, not the latest, but uh, one of the slightly more recent in a long-running series of key games. So Richard Brees in particular, he loves him some key puns. So there's been key cathedral, there's been key market, there's been key harvest, there's been keeper, there's been any number of key games. And this one is key flower, uh, sort of a, a pun on Mayflower. And we'll be talking a little bit about the theme later and why I think it's at best nonsensical and at worst deeply troubling. And I'm not actually joking about that. Anyway, this is the game they put out in 2012. And for my money, it's the best of the key games. But one thing that is in common with all the key games is they all tend to be relatively accessible, middleweight at most Euro management games, all with a very, very distinctive art style. It's very lovely, very pastoral. All the art is done by Juliette Brees. Very unique to that genre for sure absolutely you can all tell the key games they all look visually distinct but all very much in the same sort of color palette and visual style so walker why don't you tell us what we're doing in keyflower well essentially what you're doing in keyflower is making sure you have a steady influx of different colored meeples because you're going to be using these meeples for all sorts of things activating tiles purchasing tiles purchasing boats purchasing your meeples for next turn dictating the turn order for next turn using other people's tiles, using your own tiles, shipping goods around. All of these things are done with your meeples. And if you don't have enough of them, then you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. And that is what you're doing in Keyflower. So let's talk about this meeple placement, I think, because it is by far the game's biggest asset. It is super clever. It's kind of sort of worker placement, but not. It is interleaved with the worker placement element, an auction mechanic. So you're simultaneously using your workers to activate tiles while using those same workers to bid on the tiles that are themselves the action spaces. And it's really, really nifty. I agree. Like I have at the very bottom was going to be my little thing that this is not a worker placement game because in a traditional worker placement game, you have a set number of workers, you have different actions you can do to get more workers and you place them out and you get them back. In this particular game, that is not the case. You're sending all your guys out. They may come back if you put them on your own buildings. If not, you're getting them in other ways. Any meeples that people put on your buildings to use your buildings, you will get them. And that will be your, you know, what you get for uh, the next turn. Yeah, and so tiles, which again are action spaces, can be in one of three places. They're either in the middle of the table, 
in front of you or from somebody else in, in one of their villages. And if you send the workers off to somebody else's village, they're going to pocket those workers for the next season. If you put it in front of your own village or if some, of the, some other people put their workers on your own village, you pocket them for the next season. But, and this is one of, the, one of those areas of tension and tempo issues that I think is really interesting. If you put it on a space in the, on a tile in the middle of the table, you're going to get those workers back if you win the tile. But somebody else is going to keep the workers if they win the tile. And the workers are just going to go away if nobody wins the tile because again you are at the same time bidding to take these workers instead of going to activate a place you can instead make a bid that's correct and you'll put it on the outside of the tile and when you place a bid or use the action space whatever color you use sets the color for that tile so if you place a meeple on it to activate it then if you start placing meeples to bid on it they have to be the same color and if you want to reuse that tile then you have to place uh, more, one more meeple. So if the first person goes there, plays one, next person play two, next person plays three, but they all have to be the same color, whatever's set by the first person that goes in. It's immediately set the moment anyone does anything with the tile, whether it's a bit or a placement, and there are three core colors that are just randomly disgorged from the bag, red, yellow, and blue, but there are also green workers, which are necessarily more rare, and so it is very often the case that a number of people pursue the strategy of acquiring lots of green workers, thereby being able to shove out anyone else's participation from a given tile, because it's usually only a minority, minority of players around the table that even have any green workers, let alone a surfeit. And so if you just put a single green worker somewhere that can entirely change the tenor of what goes on in that tile. That's right, because that tile's set to green. If no one else has any green meeples, then you've already won the bid. So that's part of the strategy as well, is picking tiles that you know are going to be popular, so people will use them, so at the end of the turn you'll get all the meeples that were placed on them. So these tiles that give you these oddly colored uh, the green meeples are very sought after, right? You get that into your village, everyone's going to be using them, you get lots of meeples for your next turn. So let's talk a little bit about the theme. Because I think the the whole issue of the color of the meeples is is what gives me a little bit of pause. This is not a sincere concern, right? I'm not I'm not troubled by the theme of this game, despite what I'm about to say later. Let me make no mistake. Well, let's be honest too; it's just all pasted on. Exactly. Any, any theme that there is is written in the book. I have no idea what it is. I didn't even look it up. There, there's because nothing. There's during, nothing because during gameplay there is no theme. It is a very 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 themeless game. The only bit of thing that is even remotely thematically evocative is every season new workers arrive on these boats. And given that the game is called Keyflower, which conjures certain associations about immigration and settlement and so forth, you can kind of sort of cobble something together there. But past that, this is just standard Euro conversion. I send my dude to a blacksmith and so I get some goods and then I turn these goods into points elsewhere. Uh, but the element here that I think normally would demand a thematic explanation because it's mechanically clever but thematically weird is the notion that yes i have these three different colors of meeples and the moment i send a single meeple out that means that nobody else from any other color can come in i put my yellow worker worker out so if you have yellow workers by all means you can come and access this tile but nobody else can access it with blue or red and so then i'm often left and as i say i'm not troubled by this i just find it weird what is this meant to represent and the only explanation that I can come up with is this is meant to represent the unwillingness of different immigrant group groups to work together. That's all I've got. I'm, I'm saddened that, that you put that association with it. No, but I, I'm genuinely, like I say, <laughs> what else are we to make of this? Nothing. Like it's <laughs> nothing. Don't apply anything to it. It is just a game mechanic. That is all it is. But it helps. So No, don't you remember? They bring lots of sickness. Sure. When they come. Yeah. So, so 
red people have certain sickness, so they quarantine those that color off, and the yellow group has a sickness, so they quarantine. It's all just for the safety okay. of the colonists. Sure. How's that sound? Sure. I mean, that's a that's a more that's not incompatible with my explanation. All that I said was the refusal of different immigrant groups to work together, whether that's because of illness perceived or imagined or what have you. It's just it's just weird. It's one of those things. It's one of those mechanically clever things that I think would hang together better and be easier to remember if it had a good thematic explanation, sure. right? Because it's it's a fabulous rule and it helps make the game. It's often forgotten. You know, the number of times with new players or even relatively experienced players, you know, you've got a couple of yellow bids around a tile. You very often see someone plop down a red or a blue worker on the tile to activate. And you have to remind them, no, 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 that's a yellow tile now for now and forever. Uh, so I just I just think it's a bit odd. That's all. I, I see where you're coming from. Okay. So the fact that it's pretty themeless, though, kind of... Uh, segues into one of my uh, problems with the game because I do enjoy Keyflower, but it's pretty much just, you know, a pure Euro conversion game at its heart. What you are doing with respect to activation and management of workers and bidding on the tiles is great. It's really, really neat, and I find it endlessly engaging. But all of that is just your inputs to the game. The outputs are all driven by what the tiles themselves do. And what the tiles themselves do are, I think, pretty unambiguously, pretty boring. You know, you go and get three wood. You go and get a couple of tiles. You go to another uh, place and you turn those uh, goods or tiles into points. Yeah, iron into wood, wood into iron, sheep, pig, same old fare. Yeah, and it's not even just that, again, it's not even just that it's thematically the same old fare, but in terms of what you're actually doing in terms of the economy of the game past the worker management... It doesn't grab me much, which is why I can definitely understand why a lot of people identify Keyflower in particular as a sort of paradigmatic soulless Euro, because it's got clever bits, but past those clever bits, there's not much there. I totally agree, but the clever bits are very clever, and it doesn't, and it really not does not last that long. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. So Keyflower says out of the box, you can play from two to six. With six, it lasts too long. Yes. Well, no, I mean, that, that's not that's it's, not trivial, right? It's because true, true. Lots of Euros can go from two to six and are not too long at their maximum player count. I mean, we just talked about Ethnos uh, over the past few months. This is true. That's definitely a light, accessible, occasionally clever Euro that can go up to six and doesn't overstay its welcome. This is not a fault of the game, and indeed, this may be one of those instances where maybe the game would be better perceived if they would even introduced less value into the box, right? If they'd only had enough player components to go to four, no one would be ever complaining about the length, but you can play at five, which is definitely pushing it. If, if for no other reason than with, with five and six, it's not even just that it's too long, it's that there's too much stuff. You know, you've got tons of other villages to look at. There are too many effects. You don't, you can't even really make clever moves because you lose track of all the information. That's right. I wouldn't even want. I've, had, I've never played it with more than four. I wouldn't want to play with more than that. I played it with five. It was pushing it. I don't like think because, like we said, you can use anyone's buildings. It's just that you're going to give them the benefit of giving them your meeples and kind tr- trying to keep track of all these engines. Would what I find very interesting is just the meeple placement. It's like you, yep. you can see the people gearing up their their engines and you can see and they're either ready to you know you know burst their engine out and then you reach over and you put one green meeple on their key building now that meeple that building for the whole turn is a a green building right and they look down and they look at you (laughs) and then you put this grin on your face and you went oh that's fantastic well that's one of the well that's, that's an interesting point because sometimes you get better player interaction at lower player counts 
right? And this is definitely one of those examples. Once you overload someone's information too much and you can't pay attention to other people's engines, it's not possible. So people just basically switch off and just focus on their own little village. And at that point, you don't get those great little blocking moments. Because in Keyflower, it's a very, very friendly theme, except for the perhaps implied inability of different ethnic groups to work together, and the lovely engaging art. But a single placement of a color of a worker of the wrong color can really ruin everyone's day. It could be a bold bid, or it could be an activation that no one's been able to follow up on, or even just kneecapping someone's engine. You're absolutely right. Those, those moments are very nice and you tend to only get them at the three and four player count and there's a little bidding thing much like skull right where you start off with a high number like if you're bidding on a tile instead of just coming out with one you come out with a large number you know it's like sort of like you know threatening or you know you know knocking people out by just putting a big bid and and they just ignore that tile for the rest of the time whereas if you know did a slow build up you know you might have had to you know waste all of your meeples to try to get it I don't find that as much in the bidding process. I find that more in the activation process because the worker activation system is is pretty clever. You can activate a tile up to three times, but that's only if the first player places one and then the next player places two because you always have to place at least one more than the previous activation. And then the third activation is three. But if you start off with an activation of two then you know that it can only ever be activated once more. Or if you start with an activation of three, then that's it. The tile's done for the rest of the round. Nobody can do anything with it. And if you only need it the once, or if more to the point, you know that somebody else is going to make better use of it than you are, you might as well put out those three workers if you can afford it. And those moments of blocking, I also think, are particularly clever. So let's talk a little bit about bottlenecks. We talked about the kneecapping of someone's engine. Because this, is, this, again, is one of the things that I find a little less than satisfying about Keyflower. And that is the key way to get points, no pun intended, one of the major ways to get points is upgrading your tiles. Because every tile that you buy or every tile that, that enters the game that gets entered into a village can be upgraded. And that tends to, number one, improve its functioning, and number two, improve its point value. And it's worth noting, by the way, just as a side note, that the iconography attached with the tiles I find to be a marvel of usability. Because it shows you very clearly what is on the other side of the tile. And so you know perfectly well what the tile does now and what it'll do later when it's been upgraded. And exactly what you need to upgrade it. Yes, exactly. I think those things are great. But the way you upgrade tiles is by activating other kinds of tiles, namely ones with upgrade capability. And I find that near the end of the game, especially in the last season or the second to last season, because the game lasts four seasons because, you know, four seasons... Those are the tiles that get activated right away, and that's one of the chief bottlenecks of the game. It was so prevalent and so pointed, it, I think that's one of the reasons why one of the expansions sought to loosen that bottleneck. More on that in a moment. And I find that a little bit unsatisfying. I find that the last season especially is just a bit of a race for those uh, for those activation spaces. And it's one of the things that I, I think that undermines the tempo of the game. Yeah, I do have that down as almost only i have two bad points and that is one of them is that's the whole moving of the resources mechanic of this game i just think it can do completely without it right it would cut back on the timing it would cut back it would make it just flow a lot smoother it's just yet another fiddly bit that you have to mess around with for no reason i'm wondering if it's uh because like you said it really forces the interaction right because those tiles are very sought after near the end so i'm wondering if it's just another way to push the interaction between players but I think it just would do much better without it. Yeah, when you explain the way workers are placed, or at least when I first learned how workers are placed, I thought, oh, that's really clever, and in play it was satisfying. When I learned how goods move around the tiles and how it works with the upgrade system, 
I first thought, ooh, that's really clever, and then in practice, I didn't find it satisfying. I found it more mechanical than anything else and just led to strange, unsatisfying bottlenecks rather than interesting management trade-offs. Yeah, I agree. It just leads to more questions. Like, when I use this tile and it, and it produces resources, where do those resources go? And if I produce resources over at somebody else's village, where do those resources go? And then where do they come and how do I move them? When do they, it's, Like I said, it adds this. I'm not saying it's complicated or overly complicated, but I mean, compared to the rest of the game, it seems fiddly. No, you're absolutely right. It's not complicated, but people have a difficult time internalizing it. A rule being complicated is neither necessary nor sufficient for it to be cumbersome. And this is an example of a simple rule that's cumbersome, whereas there are lots of other complicated rules that aren't cumbersome. And sometimes, again, that's because of thematic integration. And where goods show up and how you move them around is very simple, but new players are constantly asking about it. And again, I agree with you, it's not satisfying dealing with it. What was the other negative you had written down there, Walker? The other negative I have is the expansions. Yeah, I'm with you. What, what What's your beef with them? Just unnecessary, really. Like I said, there's lots of games that are out there that just feed on expansions, that just do better with more expansions. And then some are just great because they're, they're just the way they are, basic, quick, the things I think it just adds more fiddly bits that don't need to be there. Like I don't have a problem with the hundreds of promo expansions and single tiles and all of those little expansions are fine, but this the ones that add like pigs and grain and it's just more pieces to to move around that are unnecessary. I could not agree more. And let's actually separate out the issue of the promos and the actual expansions. Because in theory, Keyflower has a lot of variety because you set up a subset of tiles in every game. In practice, as I've said before, I don't find the tile effects to be particularly interesting. So maybe in one game, you don't have the second tile that produces stone. And so there's one place to get stone instead of two. And sure, that has an effect on the economy and that has an effect on the action uh, selection. But it gives you two things. Number one, the setup for Keyflower. I seem to be alone in this for what it's worth. Every time I mention this, I always get pushback. And maybe you'll give me pushback for this too. I find the setup a little more cumbersome than I'd like it to be because you have to set out a subset of this kind kind of tile and a subset of this kind of tile and this other kind of tile and so basically there's eight different piles of tiles and you have to pick out a different number of them for every step of the game and that part I just find obnoxious and when you add the expansions there are two different ways to play with them and both of them involve different ways of introducing more tiles and so it just adds four new piles of tiles to deal with and it just compounds that and it doesn't give you to my taste, the feeling of genuine variety from the tile mix. As you say, it just adds on kind of extra grafted-on mechanisms that I don't think hang on particularly well with the core game. So yeah, that's definitely been my experience as well with with the aspects of... Uh, so the two expansions, one of them is called The Farmers, and it introduces a whole bunch of things with respect to animals. And Yeah, cute little animal meeples. Those are great. Don't get me wrong. And it's got animal breeding like you know every game since Agricola has had. But it just doesn't... It's it's basically like a different kind of stone that you can move around the board. This isn't stone. This is a pig instead. And the second expansion was called The Merchants. And The Merchants mostly introduced a new way to score with these so-called contracts. Where you just get a recipe for goods that you need to have at the end of the game. The one thing that The Merchants did introduce that I do like, though, is the introduction of more upgrade capacity into the game. So you can upgrade more of the tiles. That part I did like, and it's not particularly rules cumbersome, but the problem is you can't introduce that element alone. They're not self-subsisting modules. You just have to introduce the new tiles on block. Now, the promos, on the other hand, have you played with any of them? Yeah, for sure. I like the promos. They, they, have, they have cool little cute effects. They're, 
if the expansions had been more like the promo tiles, I'd be all over them. Because they're the ones that introduce these wacky little new kinds of out-of-the-box kind of effects without ad- adding entirely new sub-mechanisms onto the game. I wish I had more of them, but tracking them down is a bit of a pain. Yeah, and if, it, and it is, if it's something out of the ordinary, it's always the same. There's a mechanism of where you're going to be bidding on your boat that's coming in next round. And usually all these promo tiles are the boats. Or if it's, a, if it's something that is out of the ordinary or weird, it is a boat. So there's only like the one time you need to look through the rule book and explain what all the boats are going to do this round. It's not as though all the tiles that go into the middle are going to be something different and something you have to you know explain every time. Yeah, if they, I have both the merchants and the farmers, and honestly, ninety to ninety-five percent of the time, even with experienced players, I don't even bother. But if there were, if they released another expansion that was just kind of an omnibus of as many expansion, as many promo tiles as they could cram in, and they're not all boat tiles. Some of them are indeed season tiles that that, that introduce the game. I would I would be all over that in a hot minute because. As I say, it, it introduces genuine variety into the game, and that's what I want out of an expansion, not more cumbersome sub-mechanisms that don't really hang together well, but genuine variety and neat, cool effects, especially for people who've played the game before. Which brings my other point, which is this is yet one of these other games that I think was probably in my top ten that I do not own. <laughs> so I'm not as keen on the game. because So for all the negatives that I've talked about, the fact that the although your activation system and the way you're managing workers is great, what you're doing with them is not. None of the tiles really strike me as particularly interesting. None of those other effects are particularly grabbing. At the end of a game, I'm always left with the same feeling of vague disappointment because I wish more had been done with the genuinely clever bits because those clever bits are awesome and really cool. And for what it's worth... I do think it's a genuine variation on worker placement. It, it's not like every other worker placement game, but the way that it evolves the formula, the way that it merges auctions and worker placement together, I think is genuinely novel and cool and really expands the decision space. I just don't think much was done with it. I have nothing to say to that particular point. I want to like, just go <laughs> off on my own point, pretending I didn't listen to what you said. That's fine. But I just have nothing to add. It's just that I really find that it's easy to cheat, and I've never seen anyone dislike it. The people who tend to dislike Keyflower, just it's generally because they don't like relatively soulless Euro procedurals. That's and that's and that's fine. That's a legitimate choice. I'm not in that camp. I just wish that the tiles were a little more interesting. I wish that the expansions were a little bit better. For what it's worth, I also kind of sort of wish, and again, we're going to talk about this a little bit later when we talk about games that are too long. It's not too long, but you don't end up doing a whole heck of a lot in the game. The game lasts four seasons. And at the end of uh, the four seasons, the game itself, you know, it'll last you a solid 90 minutes or, or at least 75, even if you're playing with smaller player counts and everyone's playing. You don't feel like you've accomplished much. Not much has happened. There have been a lot of clever moves and interesting blocks and bold bids and management of workers and so forth. But, you know, you got some wood, you spent some wood, you bought maybe five tiles and you've got this little thing that you're going to call a village. But you don't really get the sense that you've built anything and you don't really get the sense that anything consequential has, has, has happened. And that, I think, helps to contribute to my general feeling of disappointment at the end of playing the game, even though I still really enjoy Keyflower. Right, we didn't really talk about the victory at the very end, too. It's kind of interesting. At the very beginning of the game, everyone's dealt out the winter tiles. Then you get to look at them throughout the game. And so you can sort of sort of build towards these victory conditions that are, might or might not come up. Because when the winter season does come up, you decide if you're going to put them both in or none of them in or just one. And then you still have to be able to bid on those. So even if you've built towards this victory condition, then you still have to make sure that you're the one that's going to win that tile. 
that I think also contributes to my feeling of the game being too short for its own good, because you're really only building your village for three seasons. The fourth season is mostly just, am I in a position to capitalize on these victory point tiles? Which again is fine. And, you know, lots of games do that. In the last sequence of the game, all you're really doing is getting those big victory point rewards, as should make sense. You don't need infrastructure anymore. You know, the game's almost over. But the fact that you're really only building infrastructure and and actually building anything or dealing with resources in a substantive way for effectively three of the four seasons, it's not a whole lot of time to breathe. No. That's what we always say when we finish. We wish it was longer. Yeah, I wish it were longer substantively. I don't wish it were longer temporally. Correct. Yeah. Which is an awkward, awkward balance. Walker's a huge fan. I'm a big admirer of the game, but I don't want to play it all the time because, again, I, I end up feeling vaguely disappointed. But I, I can't deny that the way that it uses workers is probably one of the cleverest that I've ever seen. I'm wondering if that's why I enjoy it so much. Maybe it's just a nostalgic thing because it always gets played at at a convention type thing or it's like a, a twice a year type of thing. Whereas I think if it came to the table more, maybe I, I would have more time to pick it apart. And that is our thoughts on Keyflower. So now let's talk about games that are too long. Now, first off, I would like to issue a caveat because some of the games that I really love, we don't get a chance to talk about on the podcast in large part because I haven't been able to find locals to to dig their teeth into. I'm talking about, you know, even the games back in the day like Demoker. Remember back in the day when Demoker, you know, a three to four hour Euro game was regarded as insanely, incomprehensibly long and complicated. How quaint. Now, you know, three hours for a, a three to four hours for a Euro management game is not out of the ordinary. Uh, so there's that. But there's also games like Successors, La Révolution Française, Triumph and Tragedy, some of the other con sims that take, you know, six to eight hours. I have no problem with those. And very rarely is it the case that for a lot of these uh, solid classics or, or mainstays in my collection, after playing them, do I think, eh, that really took too long and dragged. Because... Sometimes a game is too long at 45 minutes. Sometimes a game is too short at five hours. So let's talk a little bit about some of these games that, that end up being too long for their own good. What do you have to say, Walker? I, I, While well, you're talking about it, I was thinking about Colonist. Colonist is a great game that's long, like you said. It, it goes, it, it's said that it can go for nine hours. And when I played Colonist, I wish I could play it for even longer. It's a fantastic game that I could play forever. Same thing with Civ games. Civ games I could just spend all day playing, like building your pyramid of technologies or whatever particular, you know, variation of Civ you're playing. Just love those type of games. So I think when you're playing a game like that, and I haven't played The Colonists yet, I have my concerns about The Colonists uh, a priori, but when it comes to things like Civ games, I think one of the reasons why sometimes they succeed despite their length is because they have an arc. You know, you're not doing the same old thing for the entirety of the game. And that was one of our objections to Altiplano, if you'll recall. We would perhaps be willing to forgive its two-plus hours length if we felt that during hour two of the game, or even entering hour three, we were doing something different than what we were doing at turn one. But turn one feels very, very much the same as the nth turn in the game, and so since there's no arc, it ends up feeling way too long. I have the same objection to Castles of Burgundy. I was about to say, bring up the exact same game. Castle Burgundy falls right into that category. You can make a three-hour Euro management game, but I want there to be an arc, I want there to be tempo, I want there to be an ebb and flow, and very often it's games like Civ games that manage to do that. I mean, Demacher has these great moments 
of tempo management because you have all these regional elections and you have to plan for the ones you're going to fight for, the ones you're going to pull back for and conserve your resources. And if it weren't for that, if it were always just seven sequential elections that were exactly the same every time, then yeah, I think the marker would feel a lot too long. But as it is, because it has that ebb and flow, it works out. I'll go on my list. Let's go to slow players. Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, that's not really a... <laughs> no, and it's not the game's fault, but... Well, okay, sometimes it is. Sorry, go on. No, no, well, I'm... You want me to go on to the next point? Or no, no, no. no the... That's all I have right now. For sure. Players, like, well, like, leads into some of my points, like, no not knowing the rules, right? Yeah, yeah. If, if uh, before you entered our group, it would, would not phase us <laughs> to take the shrink wrap off a game and just sit and learn it and play it at the same time. Lo and behold, that that is a tragic sin in your eyes. It is. I, I'm not. I, I'm just saying what what we used to do. Whether you think <laughs> it's a sin or not, I'm just saying what this is. What we had no problem doing I can't, this. I, I can can't, see now. I can see now where, where I can't believe you're going to defend your I'm degenerate not, lifestyle. I was hope. I thought. No, when, when you set this up, I thought that there was roughly a 5% chance that you were going to say, before you introdu- before you know I, I joined your group, people didn't know the rules properly, and I at least introduced some degree of rigor. Now, granted, I am an egomaniac, so I shouldn't have even thought that there was a 5% chance of you saying that. Instead, clearly I'm some sort of tyrannical slave driver. No, I, I'm agreeing with what you say. I, I, it's the valuing people's time is what yes. it's all about. And being prepared and playing games that you already know, it all makes so much more sense now. But back then, we just didn't have time. Like, we were all working type thing, and it was like, this is a new game. This is what we're going to play. Everyone did it. We didn't have a problem. Whereas now, I'd be in your same shoes. And like, it happened, actually, not too long ago, where I showed up at someone's house. It's going to be a game night. It was someone new. It's like, oh, this should be good. I come in, and the game is sitting on the table, still in shrink wrap, and like my jaw, jaw hit the ground. I'm like, what is going to happen here? Yeah, sure enough, he pulled the shrink wrap off, got the rule book out. And yep. like, introduction. I'm like, <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah, five to ten minutes of preparation can save everyone, you know, two plus hours of confusion. But but let me, let, let's circle back to players that take too long because I think almost always it's the player's fault, obviously, and these people need to be beaten about the head and neck. But sometimes it's, I, I find it fascinating to see how games can turn normal human beings into slow players. And I think that there are elements of usability, elements of streamlining, elements even of turn structure that you can do in clever game design to minimize the possibility of that. So let me talk about some games that I think end up taking too long than they should precisely because they don't take advantage of this. One of them is the Wallenstein Shogun Immortals engine, all, all games of that type. Played incredibly briskly. The games would, I think, be one of, some of my all-time favorites because I really like a lot of what's going on there. I've never played a brisk game of any of those. They've all taken at least two and a half to three hours at minimum, and I don't think the game can survive that. And midway through some of my early playings of the game, I would look around and say, why is this game taking this long? Well, it's because a number of ways about how the game manages information, and it's about a number of, uh, of things that just encourages slow play. Like you're planning out all these things face down, so everyone has to pause and look at them and say, what was I doing after all? And everything is driven by the pace of the slowest player, and there's just a whole lot of upkeep for decisions that could have been streamlined and made a lot more fast. Uh, fast. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, but I wanted to say the other flip to that. I always thought you were going to say that everyone's actions are already locked in. So, because they have no idea what the game state's going to be, so they're making decisions 
maybe a little bit quicker and then now they're locked in and now you just have to cycle through them and there's nothing they can do about it because they've already chosen their action. If that manifested in a faster game, I'd be I'd be all over it. And this this look, I don't I don't mean to pick on uh, Volenstein in other games like this. There was a game that Martin Wallace put, put out called Pericles that had you know, one of the paradigmatic instances of the, of 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 this kind of bad game design decision. There was this period during the game where you would allocate your forces. And this was a series of like three or four very, very trivial decisions iterated many times over. So you had lots of little tiny decisions that didn't really matter. But, you know, you sit there, you look at your troops, you put a couple down, you think again, you put a couple down. It ended up bloating the game's length very, very long for something that didn't really matter. Uh, The same is true of games that just have lots of procedural upkeep. And if you're going to have many, 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 many tiny decisions that aren't very consequential, that is often a great way to make sure a game is too long. Yeah, that's what I have. Procedural thing is like turn reset, like in between turns, if there's like, you know, five decks to reshuffle or, you know, the reseeding the whole board or, you know, drawing cubes out of the Habishak or, you know, whatever it might be, that is going to blow the game out of proportion. It's one of the reasons why Aura at Labora, while you're playing it, can feel a little bit more brisk than something like Agricola, because every round in Agricola, you have to put the three wood here, you have to put the two clay over here, you have to put the stone over here, the sheep over there. Did you remember to do that thing? No, no, I didn't. Okay, put the food over here, blah, blah, blah. Whereas in Orat Labora, at the beginning of a round, all you do is you take a little spinner and you tick up one space, and that's it. Done. Everything's taken care of. So sometimes even component design can help with, with round upkeep like that. I agree. The games that I find often very frustrating, and we've talked a little bit about this, or at least there's kind of echoes of this with Keyflowers, games that are simultaneously too short and too long. They're relatively long games, but at the end of it, you feel like you haven't really accomplished much because the the game is so curtailed. Uh, The two classic examples of this for me are Millennium Blades and Dungeon Lords. Both of these are relatively involved games, but at the end of a solid two hours of play, you haven't really done much. Millennium Blades, you've done three tournaments, so you haven't really changed your deck all that much often by the end of the game. And in Dungeon Lords, you often wish, I really want a couple more seasons so I can really build out my dungeon. You told me I could build a dungeon, I haven't built much. But the game's already long enough as it is. So, you know, there's this there's this conflict between wanting to be able to grow more and at the same time realizing that the game has outstayed its welcome in terms of playtime already. True, Millennium Blades, the more I play it, the more it's it's just cycling your money through and cycling cards, and I, I, I it's long for the sake of being long. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about games oh, that, that don't evolve, but then there are the ones that evolve too much, and they're, then their length works against them. This is where the rich get richer problem. If you've got a rich get richer problem, the game is, you know... 45 to 70 minutes, that's okay. You can be out of it in, in minute 10, but still play the game to its completion and not feel that it's too long. But I often feel that in a lot of splatter games, the ones that are longer, the three, four, five-hour splatter games, if you made the inefficient decision in turn one, you're completely out of the running. And let me tell you, nothing makes a game feel long than just knowing that you're completely inconsequential to the game result. That's one of the reasons why I like Food Chain Magnate. Food Chain Magnate, people talk about it being long. I, that has not been my experience. If you play briskly, you're not, you're not going to take much longer than a couple hours if that uh dungeon alliance though definitely had that problem in addition to it being very very long the cards that you could buy were a function of how successful you were in the early turns and so the longer a game goes the more that compounds and compounds and compounds and so it would really benefit if the game were shorter it's true that's something that's one of the points i have here knowing that there's a clear winner early yeah and you had that same problem in in spheres of influence where it was quite obvious who was winning and yet you still have to sit through these turns and sometimes it feeds in sometimes to the players where even though the player is winning he 
and they're still thinking of their turn. They're still taking too long on their turns yeah. when they're clearly so far ahead, and it makes it so much more painful. It's true. And king. I, the other thing I have here is king-making. If the game is taking longer than it should, people that are not in the running have more chances to influence who is actually going to win. And more perverse incentive to do so. I've been in situations, I wrote about this before, back when I maintained a blog, if a game is going too long, I start having this terrible cognitive dissonance where on the one hand, I still want to play fairly, and fairly by my conception is, you know, not throwing the game to somebody else. But if it's going so long, I'd be like, I should throw this to somebody so I can be out of the game. And this happens sometimes with games that are just dragging on to the completion. It's like, uh, I could take the move that benefits me, even though I'm not going to win, or I can help Walker win. So so the game will be over and I can go home. Yeah, and I, I don't like being put in that position. One thing that I find very endemic, sometimes I find certain genres of game have certain flaws that that arise too often and for my for my money uh dungeon and adventure games are often way too repetitive and inconsequential like there's this grind they've internalized the grind so you're just whacking inconsequential monsters for far too long and these are even games that i like too many bones is an example you're just doing fight after fight after fight after fight after fight it's one of the reasons why I really like Assault on Doomrock, because for whatever whatever its problems, you only ever have three fights in Assault on Doomrock instead of, like, a dozen that you might have in Too Many Bones. That's why I like City of Kings, was yep. because you're given a distinct objective. You could fight whatever monsters you wanted to during that, or maybe it was part of it, but you had a distinct objective for every step of the way, and then you're done. It wasn't this, like, cycle over and over again, except for bringing goods to town. That was a... Yeah, a harsh cycle. That was a bit repetitive, but yeah, the, the fights the fights were not repetitive and grindy, and so that helped keep the game feeling brisk. Uh, Catacombs is the same way. Catacombs is a great dexterity game. I enjoyed a great deal, but about halfway through, I'm like, can't we just skip half of these rooms? There's just too many rooms, too much whacking the same monsters over and over and over again to no effect that don't really have any influence on the game state. Adventure games seem to want to do this all the time. It's like we're all still trapped in the talisman mold of things taking too long. It's weird. Yeah, well, whenever I play uh, Catacombs now, it's three rooms. That's it. I throw the merchant in just before the last room and done. Yeah, I definitely agree. There are also games that wouldn't necessarily be too long, but the fact that they're so random that they really shouldn't last that long, you know, because again, sometimes a game is too long at 45 minutes and sometimes it's a game at too short at five hours. And sometimes games aren't necessarily particularly long, but they just feel too long. We talked recently about GKR Heavy Hitters, which doesn't last very long for a giant mech stompy game. It's, you know, 60 to 90 minutes or so. But given how light the decision-making is and given how arbitrary a lot of the dice rolls are, that's too long. It's just not... You know, for, a, for a fun bash em up robot game, at 45 minutes it would have been fine. But at 60 to 90 minutes it felt way too long. I feel the same way about Formula D. Little too long for what is essentially just getting together and rolling dice. It's true, but like we talked about... Well, let's, go, let's quickly go back to G-Care, Killer Robots, because I just want to do the other side of the coin, which is Shadespire, right? Which is the same randomness, the same yep. dice rolls, but they knock it out in like, you know, 20 minutes. Yeah. Shadespire at twice its length would be a terrible game. Exactly. I think we can acknowledge. I think we talked about it in the review, because the dice results are so fluky. It's the wor- It's by far, to my estimation, it's the worst part of the game. The die results can be all over the map, but... It's a 20 to 30 minute game when you know what you're doing. So it's kind of okay. You can just shrug and say, eh, happens. Yeah, and play again. Yeah, yeah exactly. absolutely. And then so back to Formula, Formula Day. In, in order to get that come from behind feeling 
I think it just needs to be that length. <sighs> yeah, I know, but it's just so it is. It is like so I, tedious. What is it with race games that feel too? I had the same problem with Jamaica. Jamaica is another race game that a lot of people like, and it's not especially long, but it's so paper thin and light. No, that, I think that is the only game on this whole entire shelf here that I have not played. It's been sitting there for too long. I need to get that out, Jamaica. Some people really like it. Race games just seem to tend to be too long very often. It seems to be endemic to the genre. Same thing with dungeon crawlers. They often just tend to be too long. Put it in a dungeon and people seem to want to age you like a skeleton. Put it put it on a fast racetrack and everyone wants to slow the game down. I don't understand. Well, that's, like, how many, I don't know how often you've played Formula Day lately, but how many times have you done more than one lap, right? Yeah. Like I, I even say like the come from behind thing is something to do, but I've... I do not play more than one lap. I think in the last, you know, six times I've played because, like you said, it's just pretty I painful. Think, I think it's it's just aged. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? There's the only the one mechanism. It's the risk reward, and you're doing it over and over again. And sometimes a, a clear winner is a clear winner, and you're just going through the motions. The final category of game that's too long that I like to talk about. This is probably one of the ones that's going to be uh, a little more controversial, not necessarily with you, but with uh, with the imaginary people that don't exist that listen to this. And that is games that take too long because the just internalizing the information state of the game is mentally taxing. So you constantly have to be reevaluating what's going on to just even understand what's on the board. And as a result, the game will stretch on into three, four hours. And two class, one class of games that happens. Uh, where this happens all the time is the coin games, the counterinsurgency games by GMT. They take what could be a relatively straightforward game of area influence, like El Grande, and they instead make the victory conditions these five conditional nested things where you have to look at a region and say, wait, do I have control? Do I have influence? Do I have occupancy of this region? Wait, I get a point for this region if I have occupancy and you have control but not influence. Wait, is this the state? Uh, you have three of this and four? Uh, okay, no. And there's no easy way to track this. There's no easy way to t- just eyeball it and say, well, I've got more guys there because the asymmetry is there and the asymmetry is nice, but it results in a game board that is just too difficult to parse easily. And the victory conditions are too difficult to parse easily. The same problem to a lesser extent happened to a, a game of the same publisher, and it's a game that I really want to like, which is called Dominant Species. Dominant Species has this notion of fitness of organisms to habitat. And in order to do that, you need to look at variant all these variant conditions and reevaluate each hex to see what kind of thing can survive there. And I just found the mental strain of evaluating what kind of entity would survive or thrive there was just made what could have been a relatively brisk uh, or at least a relatively reasonable moving two-hour worker placement game into something that was plus uh, three hours plus and at that point you really have to do something special to keep me engaged and i just kind of tuned out so maybe that should be another show coming up is when theme is forced and it ruins the game (laughs) (laughs) well no i mean look dominant dominant species i thought the thematic integration was pretty good just by virtue of how it managed the information state. And you're just constantly spending all this time in figuring out what the board state was and who was apt to thrive was just so mentally taxing. And at the point where the game makes you mentally tired, you then start to play more slowly. And then it just becomes this reinforcing cycle of doom. We hit all my points. So with that in mind, I think Walker needs to go feed himself because he finds the prospect of feeding people stressful. 
Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For a more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. And as we've said at the top of the episode, a lot of feedback helps us be better. So that's why we appreciate you a great deal. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. <laughs>